Genesis chapter 18. We'll begin our reading in verse 9 and read down to verse 16. Here's what the reading says this morning. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? As the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And that will conclude our reading this morning. That's reading Genesis chapter 18, verse 9 through 16. The title of our message this morning is A Miracle Within a Miracle. A miracle within a miracle. I'm going to read something very short to you uh, today that I wrote that kind of outlines the purpose of our message this morning. Many people within our Christian fellowship believe in God's power as a matter of principle. Orthodoxy, that just means believing the truth, Demands we affirm God's infinite power. But hidden behind our answers is often doubt. Our beliefs must be grounded in principle, but they are enlivened by conviction. This morning, I seek to, de- to deepen your conviction. In other words... Um, If I asked all of you whether God was powerful or not, or all-powerful, that God could do anything, I don't doubt that even the smallest children would say yes. But when confronted with time and circumstance, oftentimes our convictions or our steadfastness in faith lapses, and we begin to doubt. Now, often we don't interpret it as doubt, but our actions, or rather our reactions, affirm that in fact we are doubting. And this morning, if I could accomplish anything by the help of the Lord today, it would be to deepen your faith in our great God. Um, The more that I study the scriptures, the more that I um, observe the world that we live in and learn, the more that my mind is is confounded by how awesome 
and powerful that God is. It so far defies words. But I think over the last few years, what has um, deepened my faith more than anything is the observation of miracles within miracles. Or in other words, very often what we do when we preach, when we study the scriptures, is we take a portion of scripture and we read it, and we note certain things that have happened, or we call out, for example, in this situation, no doubt it's a miracle that we'll talk about a little bit of this woman conceiving at 90 and her husband being 100, and we marvel at God's power and purpose in that. And yet I think that is selling wildly short the the heart of this story. Because this miracle is really of, of them conceiving a child is the smallest within a multi layered narrative that leaves me awestruck by God's wisdom and design. Or in other words, this is just a small, minor detail within this grander story that is just chalked full of miracle after miracle. And what God does is He weaves these miraculous things together to accomplish a purpose. One of the things that I I love, I don't very often if I see a movie or, or read a book, I'm, I'm, I'm hard to impress. I'll just put it that way. Uh, but one thing that is always very impressive to me is whenever a writer or a, a um, producer can accomplish all these small narratives within a grander narrative. And you see all these people and situations occurring, but it's all connected, but it's all kind of separate. And when they accomplish, the author is able to do something at the end of the movie that satisfies all of these different scenarios. It leaves me kind of awestruck. If a writer is trying to articulate a point and they can somehow weave together six or seven arguments to then end with an even more profound point, it's amazing. And yet what we see in this scripture and what we see throughout the Bible is that God is All about that. One of the things that came to my mind as I was studying this, and I'll try to get to our scripture reading here in a moment, is uh, education. One of the defects, I think, in the way that we educate today is it's education is very compartmentalized. What I mean is you study biology. And then you walk into a different room and you study history. And you walk into a different room and you may study chemistry or language, or all of these different topics. And certainly there's a a profit in doing that. But to me, real learning takes place when those boundaries begin to drop and you begin to see the world as we know it coming together and you recognize that real life and the world we live in is not within compartments, but it's all these things layered on top of one another. And true education begins to happen 
when a person can take multi-levels of those things, mesh them together, and understand to a deeper level all of those things. Now, that's really hard to do, and it doesn't happen very often, especially in a, in a society where we um, believe in specialization. We specialize in certain things. But once in a while, when you see the world come together in this way, I was thinking about uh, our, our, our sons being born. And when I first became a dad, one of the things that just amazed me as we began to study more about, and Kathleen would get videos, and she would uh, keep up with, with different things online about the growth of our little baby within her. And certainly there is a biological component to that that is just marvelous. And week after week at some point, I remember it was on Wednesday, week after week on a Wednesday, we'd sit down at the end of the night and she would pull up this app and it would talk about uh, what had developed within our child and it was just amazing. And yet what I would often get drawn back to and today what often makes me stand in all of God's design is not just the biology of it. But it's everything else. Because there's a relational part of it within a married couple. That conception is not just a physical act. There is an intimacy that is enjoined that transcends just the physicality of it. There's an emotional bond that God designed within the concept of sex and conception that is meant to bring a couple together. There's a psychological component to it. There's anatomical design that God made us perfectly complementary to one another. There's an emotional component between the mother and the child and that mother carrying that child for so long. I got to study whenever one of our children was born about the milk that comes in, colostrum. And it just amazed me that it's not... It's full of um, antibodies. It's full of uh, this, uh, what was it called? It's slipping my mind now. But it it was full of things to basically, basically stimulate the baby's body and help protect its immune system. It's full of all of these things to prepare the baby. It's within this mother's womb and it's protected from so much. And then when it comes out, it's introduced all types of bacteria and risk. And God designed it to where this first nutrients the baby gets is something that will prepare it to be outside the womb in a different environment versus within the womb. How that also serves to bond the baby to the mother. You see what I'm saying here is there's all these multi-layers to some what often people want to limit to some biological miracle. But from the conception of a child to the birth of a child, to the upbringing of a child, God has multiple dimensions in which he has ornately designed all of it in a specific way to accomplish his ultimate purpose. That's one of the things that I love to learn about is just seeing the profound wisdom of God and coming to the conclusion and definitely coming to the conclusion there is no way that man could design a story like that nor is there a way that just spontaneously these things could happen. 
here. My purpose this morning is to want to prompt us that I suppose our Wednesday night uh, Bible study this past Wednesday night really sparked a lot of these thoughts. I hope that we can begin to pray for bigger things than what we pray for. Because the reality is, if God is who he says he is, and he is this great, this great being far beyond our comprehension, and here Abraham and Sarah are confronted with this situation that seems from the natural eye with the shallow thought impossible, and she laughs in so much that she thinks this is just a, a biological impossibility. There is no way this can happen. I imagine on the flip side of it, God kind of laughs back and says, don't you know who I am? And these angels that, she, that Abraham is talking to points out that Sarah has laughed. Now, Sarah's not the only one that laughed because in a previous occasion, when God spoke that to Abraham, Abraham laughed as well. So both of them are hearing about this miracle that God has determined to perform and they feel like it's such a difficult task that they laugh at the possibility of it. And the angel, I believe very seriously, looks at Abraham and asks him this question. Is there anything that is too hard for the Lord I ask you that question this morning. Is there anything that is too hard for the Lord? Absolutely there's not. Here, in this situation, Abraham is going to have a child. Excuse me, Sarah is going to have a child with Abraham. He's 99 years old and she is 90 years old. God has told him back in Genesis chapter 12, God made him some promises. These promises, God said, you're going to have an heir. That heir is going to become so your, your ancestry, or rather uh, your, your progeny is going to become so, multi, uh, is going to be multiplied so much that it's going to be more than the stars in the sky. It's going to be more than the sand upon the beaches. You're going to have more than what you could ever imagine. And he doubles that promise by also saying this, not only is the nation going to spring forth from you, but furthermore, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in you. Now at this point, there is no way that Abraham can conceive of what God has just told him. Right, His mind begins to get focused upon this first necessity that has to occur for those promises to come true. And so at this time in Genesis 12, he is 75 years old and his mind becomes fixed upon who is my heir going to be. Now when God made this promise, that part of the promise is going to be the, the most believable part that God can deliver. Right? Abraham has no conception as to what's going to come after Isaac. And yet God has made him this promise in Genesis 12 that I'm going to do things beyond your wildest imaginations. Abraham, like many of us, some time lapses and he begins to doubt God. And so he has this servant that is the head servant of his household, Eleazar. And he comes before God in prayer one day and he says, Lord, allow Eleazar to be this heir that comes forth from my house. And God says, no, I've got more plan than just through Eleazar. Some more time lapses. And Abraham and Sarah both begin to doubt what God can do. 
And so Sarah encourages him to take Hagar, her bondservant, to lie with her and to produce an offspring. And so that's what Abraham does. In his doubt of God's promises, he goes and, I would say, disrupts God's perfect will or perfect plan. And he does this, and then Hagar conceives the child, and it's Ishmael. God tells him at another point, it's not going to be through Ishmael that your seed is given the promise. And Abraham becomes desperate with him. He says, Lord, please allow Ishmael to live before you forever. Allow him to be this one. And God says, no. It's not going to be through Ishmael. It's going to be through you and Sarah. And this is the occasion where he comes. And he makes this promise to him. And he says, it's going to be through both of you. And a year from now is what he's going to say here in a few moments. A year from now, Sarah is going, to conceive a, is going to have a child. And that is going to be the heir through which I perform all the promises to your seed. And so, Abraham and Sarah, they conceive. And Sarah becomes pregnant at the young age of 90 years old. My grandmother, is, as most of you know, just passed away. And I always used to tease with her that and it was a good thing for me. It put a, a visual to what's going on here that when she hit about 90 years old, I always used to tease, well, when are you expecting? And she would always laugh and, and deny that. And I would say, well, you know, in the Bible, there was a woman that had a child at 90 and she said, well, I don't have a husband. And I said, well, there is a woman in the Bible that God conceived through that too, right? Um, now, I say that obviously as a part of humor, but also because it put a visual representation to a woman having a child at 90 years old. And the miracle that would have been for that to take place. And yet God had much more planned through this child than just the miracle of his birth. That was going to be just one step amongst a multiplicity of things that God was going to do within this promise to Abraham. Because what the Bible teaches us is that after Isaac is born, that Abraham is going to go up and that he's going to sacrifice him or be willing to sacrifice him upon Mount Moriah. And so he takes him up to that mountain and Abraham being obedient to God and, and following after him and what God is doing, and here's what I'm wanting you to see here, is God is adding another layer of his miracle to this original miracle in birthing Isaac. He takes him up there, and, and through Isaac, we know that because he had him at such a late age, we know that because this promise hadn't been fulfilled for 25 years, we know because Abraham raised that son and had all the hopes of God's promises placed within him, then Abraham is given this instruction to go and to sacrifice this, this son of his that he deeply loved. And what does Abraham do? Faithfully follow God and walk up that three-day journey to that mountain in order to sacrifice him. You see, when God made the promise to Abraham at 75 years old, God was just beginning a series of events to display his greatness to humanity. And that foundation was built upon when Abraham steps up there and he goes as far to lift up his knife to, to kill Isaac and to make him a sacrifice. And God stays his hand and stops him and makes this picture a picture of the coming Messiah in Jesus Christ. But that's not all. You, you realize where that Mount Moriah is at, right? You know what Mount Moriah is, don't you, in the Bible? 
It's where modern-day Jerusalem is built. So here on Mount Moriah, the very mountain, the very area where Jesus Christ is going to be crucified as a sacrifice for our sins is the very place that God is painting this picture for all of mankind about what he's going to do through Isaac. But that's not all. That's just another layer of what God's doing. See, there's going to come a day in the future where that same offspring, there's going to be some um, political implications to this whole story. Because there's going to be this great world power that is forming at the time of Abraham by the name of Egypt. And they're going to ascend to be the very top of the heap. And here, God is preparing a people that he can call his own. Obviously, what we know today is the Jewish people or the Hebrew people. And he's going to take the offspring of Isaac and the offspring of Jacob. And Jacob's going to have 12 sons. And those 12 sons are going to have some, some issues with one another or with one of them. And they're going to cast him into a prison and they're going to, or excuse me, into a pit. And they're going to sell him into Egypt. And it's going to be by him going into Egypt as a slave, getting cast down into a prison. And then rising out of that prison to be the second in command in Egypt. That that is the means by which God knew that there would come a famine one day that was going to hit that whole area. And yet it was through this providential circumstance using the offspring of Abraham that God was going to redeem and save Those 70 people of his lineage that came into Egypt through Joseph. Here's another layer of God's beautiful plan that he is weaving together. He goes into Egypt, all 70 of them, the book of Exodus chapter 1 tells us. And there they're in Egypt. And the Bible says there arose a king that knew not Joseph. And he sees these Hebrew people. And he decides to enslave them. For 400 years. 400 years pass. And for centuries, these people are calling out to God for freedom, for help. And yet, the Bible teaches us back here in the next chapter, in Genesis, I believe, chapter 19. I'd have to go back there and double check. It may be a little later than that. That... At the same time that God is preparing a people in Egypt to be its own nation and to go and conquer the promised land, as God is preparing to do that in Egypt, there's also another group of people called the Amorites that are in Canaan. And God is, I believe, desirous that they come to know him, but he is waiting until they have reached the brink of sin where he is going to judge them. And so God has two things going on at once. The Amorites, he is going to judge them at some point whenever he has reached the limits of his mercy. He is going to call them into judgment for their evil deeds. While at the same time, he has the Hebrews here growing and growing and growing so that one day they can be a nation standing on their own. God has two different things going on at once and he is going to accomplish one purpose by bringing these people together. Now, that that amazes me. One of the things that amazes me about our own lives in a very similar sense is that God can be over the course of many years preparing my heart, preparing my life to cross paths with somebody else. 
And God all the time is preparing that person's heart, preparing that person's life so that when we do cross paths, there is an act of God that can take place between the two of us. And we can be separated by miles and cultures and family traditions and all those things. But all the time, as God is working in our lives independently, he is preparing, I think, of the young people that are here today that are looking into a day where you're going to find a spouse I would encourage you today to pray for your spouse that, 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 that your spouse, even in this very moment, God would be preparing their heart, preparing their character to be your companion for life. And God can answer your prayer, though you don't know a name, though you don't know who the person's going to be, though you don't know when they're going to cross your path, God in real time can be preparing their life to cross with yours that you might begin this foundation of a marriage upon which many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and the effects of which will last for centuries of time, you can begin to pray today that God in his infinite wisdom would begin to prepare their hearts hearts for that union God is doing something altogether different to the Amorites and what he's preparing the Israelites for but at the same time there's this coming together that's going to happen and then they cry out for a deliverer and isn't isn't Moses it's just a he's such a strange um there's so, he, he's such a strange combination of situations, you know. The, his situation around his birth. He's, he's raised by his own mother unknowingly. But yet he, he's raised in Pharaoh's kingdom. All that is for a reason. Now listen. Here, Abraham and Sarah are so focused on this moment and God doing something in this moment that they have no idea the whole big picture that's coming. You know, very often that is so indicative of the way that we think. Captives to the moment, captives to the circumstance, captive to our generation, our culture, our people, our surroundings. We're so accustomed to thinking the here and now. And very often what we know from the word of God is that God's providence is active in our lives. That there are not little details in our lives that God is not aware of or that God cannot use for our good. There is hardship occurs. There are things that defy explanation from a human standpoint. And yet a person strong in faith as Abraham was That is a person who can take these things and acknowledge, I don't know in this life if I will ever understand the end purpose of these unfoldings, but I do know that our infinite God will weave those together for somebody's good. I've often thought of the character flaws that I have, the, the good things about my character that I have that I pass on to my children, whether perhaps... A reason for that might not become known until four or five generations later. Moses' mother, no doubt, was distraught about the situation surrounding her son. I mean, imagine knowing that this, your son is growing up the son of a different woman. The pain that it would cause you and inflict upon you daily. Imagine holding your child and nursing your child And then at the end of the day, having to give it back. 
And yet in all this, this is all a part of God's original promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham. God is saying to a purpose. Moses goes out and he lives for 40 years in the desert. You know, I've often had times in my life that were deserts. Just times in my life where I look around all around me and there's no light, there's no spiritual life. There's no tangible thing I can grab a hold of and say, well, this is why I'm here. I've shared with you before the five years I didn't pastor between this church and the last church that I pastored. I many days, many nights cried out to God just saying, Lord, I'm not doing anything. Here I am just wandering in the desert. And many times I remember behind this very pulpit when a brother during the minister school was talking about that very thing, that there's a purpose in the desert. And rather than the bemoaning the fact that Moses was in the desert, what he didn't know is that God was preparing him for the next 40 years that would come after him and all of the marvelous things that were going to take place from the time that Moses was 80 years old to the time that he died at 120 years old. Those 40 years were crucial, no doubt, in the development of him being able to carry those things out. And yet, what's he doing? He's out there wandering with a bunch of sheep, a bunch of nomads. But then there came a day at the end of that 40 years where he saw something he couldn't forget, and that was going to be the beginning of something God was going to do that was going to impact, listen to me, millions of people born and yet to be born. He goes out there and he sees that burning bush, and God speaks. Oh, the definitive. He had no idea what he was about to get into. Moses marveled at the bush, fascinated by the bush. And yet that was the smallest of miracles God was about to do. All that was doing is captivating Moses' attention. God's true demonstration of his power and of his purpose was forthcoming for just a few weeks, a few days. Moses was going back to Egypt, but not as a slave as a deliverer. And God was going to use him to bring those people out. And they were going to come out into the wilderness. And Moses was going to do things. Crossing the Red Sea. He was going to see things that defy any human explanation. All of this was a part of what God had promised so long ago to our father Abraham. Those people were going to go out. They were going to form a nation. Eventually they were going to go through the conquest. I believe it took them around 36 years to conquest through that next generation through the promised land and conquered the majority of what God had promised them in Canaan. They were going to have a law out there because God delivered the law at Sinai. They were going to have uh, all these various experiences with kings and prophets that were going to come, judges that were going to come, neighboring wars that they were going to have. They were going to be called into captivity. They were going to have all these various things transpire over the next 1,500 years from the time of Moses until the time of Jesus Christ. And yet what we find in that faithful day when God met with Abraham in Genesis 12 is that there was a promise yet to be fulfilled despite all of those things that God was doing through his offspring. There was going to come a man who was going to be born, born of the lineage of David, of the lineage of Abraham, that was going to be a blessing to all nations, and that that man was going to come from Abraham's loins, and he would be the deliverer, not just temporarily from bondage, but for all people, in all places, regardless of sin and circumstance, found in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was going to take the world And he was going to turn it all upside down from what it had been. Every religious 
norm that was established amongst all cultures, every division between the people of God and not the people of God, Jesus Christ was going to come, and in that brief period of his ministry, just over three years, he was going to turn the world entirely upside down. And all that we see beginning, the vehicle beginning in Genesis 12 with Abraham. This morning, when I think of the prayers of God's people, when I listen to prayer requests, when I think of my own prayer life today, it is, shows, it is very short-sighted. It is very small. It revolves around the equivalent. We take the whole entirety of the Old Testament and we think of all the miraculous circumstances and to consider the fact that much of that began in some sense of the word back with Abraham in Genesis 12 and his mind could never have conceived of the, that fruitful world that was going to happen through him. And very often, we stumble just like Abraham and saying, well, how can I conceive a child? I'm really old. And yet that was just the smallest thing that God was going to do. Listen, and translating that into modern day terms, when you think of the best case scenario for us and what God can do with us, what is it? Like, what is the thing that you say, you know what? I'm really praying to this end, yet in the, in the knowledge that God can answer those things, you know that he can as a matter of principle. You're assured by his word that he can do these things that you desire, and yet there's a lingering doubt even over those things that you're imagining. I would imagine it would be something like this. I want all the young people in our church to get saved. That's a great thing. I hope you pray for that. And yet, even in that small thing from the standpoint of God, is there not lingering doubt that often prevails? Is there not a sense to which you say, I know God can do it, but I doubt that he will do it based on past experience in my life. I doubt. I'm talking about the sinful thoughts in the recesses of our minds. I, I know God can in our next revival save everybody or before then. But, you know, it's just, I doubt it. We've talked a lot about and emphasized a lot about our young people being discipled within the church. Oh, and there's this prayer that I I shared with you just a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night that just continuously flows through my heart. I I just call each of these kids by name, praying, Lord, save them and, and make them on fire disciples, followers, that they're willing to do what the apostles were called to do, what all of us are called to do, and that is forsake all, take up our cross and follow and not look back as Lot's wife did. Just follow him and do it with an ardent zeal that inspires the other people around them to walk in their footsteps and walk with them. Oh, I pray for that. You know I do because I talk about it all the time. Pray for that. And yet, in truth, in, in truth, that's a very small thing that I'm asking God to do. Don't you know that God is capable and desirous to do so much more? They laughed. You may laugh at some of the things I'm about to say. That's okay. But remember, they laughed. And God responded with this question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? 
You know, in my mind, here's what I, I see. For many, many years, true churches of the living God just going downward. In all measurements, that's just a fact. Attendance, downward. Spirituality, downward. Lost people being saved, downward. Knowledge of the scriptures by members, downward. Missions, downward. I mean, you just go on and on. I'm not going to be discouraging this morning, but it's just, I think, something we all know to be the case. And in my mind... There's got to be a generation to stop that. And I know by the power of God, I'm looking at it. I know that. I imagine in my mind, one day, those are us that are serving two masters. We talked about that a little bit last week. Like many of our forefathers did, in recent generations, where yes, we care about church and yes, we, inv- we invest to a degree, but truly, our mind and eyes are still fixed upon a- accumulation and achievement. And at times we feel this, this drawing, like God is compelling us to walk this other direction. And yet we're afraid because it's a territory That one, we've never been on before. And two, not many people walk. I imagine this point coming among us. Where a person, finally, the conviction sets deep enough. And they say, okay, I can't serve two masters anymore. Now, the kingdom of God is first. And I don't know what that looks like, church, but I want you to pray for me. Because I want God to deploy me as zealously in this work as I am currently caught up in my present work. I imagine there being a day among us where that happens among us. And where God accomplishes in that, not just your life becoming now abundantly more fruitful in the kingdom of God, but that also simultaneously being an example to all the people in our church, to all the people beyond this, of what God can do through a non-preacher who just sets out to follow him with all of their heart. And it inspires others to say, you know what? His brother used to be a good Christian in church, but now his work outside of church, God is using him. And I see it, and I want to be like it. I imagine a day, and I'm not just talking about our church, I'm talking about the Lord's churches, where people begin one by one to recognize the vanity and worthlessness of investing in the world and put all their eggs in one basket, and that is God's. You know, I believe, I believe when people do that, things will begin to change. Not just because of the work those people are doing, but because God will be pleased and he'll bless it. He'll mag- just like he did with those disciples, theirs, they were handing out the little fish in the bread. 
right? Come with such a little things, little fragments to offer. And yet God, through his blessing, magnifies it beyond our comprehension. I encourage you today, just come with your little basket. That's all you have to do. Just come with your little basket and say, God, I don't have a lot. I can't even conceive of how you could use my small talents and ability. But I know that I'm small, but you're big. And I see what you have done. And I know you can do it again. I imagine a day where people do that. I imagine a day where, you know, one of the things that we've talked to the minister school committee about is one of the things that really disturbs my heart right now is we have so few missionaries going out. I mean, it's just so small. I'm talking about domestic foreign missionaries, people who are saying, there are people unreached out there. I feel called to go reach them. And when I consider the 8 billion people plus that live amongst the world, when I consider how dark the world is, if you consider Asia or China alone, you combine China and India and you're talking about almost 3 billion people who don't have the light of the gospel for the most part. 3 billion people. And they need the gospel so desperately. You know, my tendency growing up is, Brother Steve mentioned this yesterday, the deacons meeting is you naturally think, well, it's somebody else's job then. But what if it's not? Like, what if God wants to raise up among us Chinese missionaries? Boys and girls who see the, the, the way that God sees and recognizes the, the futility of laying up treasures in this life. But they recognize how valuable the souls of men are. And they imagine themselves as wandering in darkness as those Chinese people are. And they cannot bear the thought as they go to bed at night that those people have no hope of hearing and of seeing unless somebody says to God, here am I, send me. So they pray. When's the last time you prayed for somebody to be sent there? Even if it's not you. I mean, don't you sympathize with the people who are impoverished from the gospel standpoint? Don't, doesn't your heart just long and hurt? As Paul's in Romans 9 when he says, I could wish myself to be accursed that my brothers in the flesh could know the truth. Doesn't the love of God shed abroad in your heart cause you to back away from all the Silly things that a million years from now nobody will care about. Nobody will remember. And think of those people. Like doesn't the love of Christ shed abroad in your heart compel you to think of those people and in the very least pray that God would send someone. I imagine a day where our minister school grows I imagine a day where it's not just these people within our short small area of churches that come and attend but that slowly just as brother Bryson did going into Africa now it's a yearly occurrence that brother Samuel and brother Paul and at times brother Frank and brother Tom would come over here four men on a continent well, I can't remember the exact number. I think Africa has somewhere like 1.2 billion people. Four men come from that continent. 
We don't have Africa covered with four men. Right? What about there being more? And you know, you, you consider today, the sacrifice today pales in comparison to 100 years ago of people going over there. Right? I mean, it's a good situation now. If you're going to be a missionary, you get to fly. You get to bring conveniences. You get to FaceTime. And yet, don't you want people to go there and reach those souls? I imagine people from all these countries. I'm fascinated with countries and geography. and From Iraq and Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. Those are some of the hardest places you'd ever try to reach. But let me ask you this question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, can't our prayers be of that magnitude that not only would God save your son and save your daughter, but in saving them, they would prepare them for a work that would last centuries. I'm going to try to be brief with this story, but I feel I'm going to tell this. I've told it once before here. I told you before about my son Judson's named after Adoniram Judson, a missionary to Burma back in the early 1800s. That was the first real book I ever read as a teenager. I was 17 years old. I had just gotten called to preach. I was given this book to the Golden Shore. I'd encourage you to read it. I read it. It's about 400 pages. It's this life of this man, Adoniram Judson, and all the things that he went through and he suffered. And his life had this profound impact on me, really, really profound impact on how I looked at the world, how I looked at my own life, what I wanted to do in life. I cannot overstate it. He did that, again, in the early 1800s, suffered unbelievable hardship. 200 years later, I'm in Southport, Indiana. I'm student teaching. Week before I'm done student teaching with my last student teacher placement, I'm in there making copies in the teacher workroom. Get on with my copies and there's a young lady that walks in and she's Burmese. Now that school was littered with, with Burmese people. They had been refugees that had been brought here. I think there's a part of them in Louisville and part of them are in Indianapolis. And so it's just completely, every class that I had probably had four to five Burmese kids. And what I noticed about those kids was something very fascinating to me, is that any time that there was a lull in the class, they finished their work or something, almost all of them would reach down in their book bag, get out their Bible and read. Now, eighth graders don't do that. We were on a field trip one time, headed somewhere, and these Burmese children were sitting in front of me. One of them got out their Bible, and they were both reading and they were talking in Burmese about what the Bible was saying. I was very impressed. I thought, that's not normal for kids to do that. This day, I'm walking out of this, this room, and I thought about the book out of Iron Judson that I read, and, and, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to go ask this lady. She's Burmese. I'm going to ask her about, about whether she's ever heard of him. And I walked in there, and I began to have a little small talk, and she's busy about doing copies and stapling and three-hole punching, and she's busy focused on that as we're talking. And I said, I have just one question I want to ask you real quick. Have you ever heard of Adoniram Judson? And she stopped what she was doing and she looked me dead in the eye. And she said, he's the man that brought the light of the glorious gospel to my people. You know, when I read that book, I don't want to spoil it for you, but I guess I'm going to. When I read that book, there were times that cast me into this deep pain. 
remember I was reading. I remember where I was at. I was 17 years old. I was sitting in my library at my high school reading. Which at that time, I had a lot of friends giving me grief because I didn't read a lot. And I got to this portion of it where his wife, Anne, died. And he, this was a real man. And they had endured so much together to bring the gospel to these people. They had, they had gone through together the loss of children. He had been imprisoned, held upside down and tortured. His, the manuscript, he, see, he had to invent the alphabet because the Burmese didn't have a written alphabet. So he invented one. And then he learns Greek and Hebrew. Then he forsakes the religion of his past to become a Baptist. Then all these things happen. All these hardships that he endures. And his wife is there with him through the whole thing. And he's there with her as she loses child after child. And they learn this new language. And he translates this Bible into this language. And then the Bible is burned. It's lost. So he has to start all over to translate this Bible again. And they go through it all together. And then she dies. I was 17 and it just hurt. She died 200 years ago. And I sat there crying because she died. And then as I was standing there with that woman when I was 22 years old. And I thought, he, like the Bible says, a seed must fall to the ground and die before it produces fruit. And 200 years later, I'm looking at this girl halfway around the world from where he was at. And I'm seeing the fruit of Adoniram Judson looking me in the face. And kids, generations later, fruit from his life. At that moment, God got a lot bigger to me. He got a whole lot bigger to me. And I realized for the first time in my life because I saw it and I touched it and I I knew it, it was tangible now. There is nothing that is too hard for the Lord. I imagine our school. I don't care how, I was a public education teacher. I don't care how supportive you are of public education. Certainly in the last two, three years, you have been troubled by what has been going on within the public schools. Even if you don't think we're to that line yet, certainly you think we're getting close to a place that godly kids cannot be sent there. I mean, if we're not there yet, certainly we're coming close. And yet spread out amongst our churches all across the United States. Would it not be a wonderful thing for our church to become a template for what other churches can do to help If it's not private school, homeschooling, whatever it is, would it not be a wonderful thing if now we have another dimension to our our school added? And it's not just we're having a school here at the church. Now it's spreading it across our land to other people. I think of our videos. You know, I was contacted this week by a gentleman. I don't think the church has any idea how far and wide those things go. I mean, truly, those videos that we produce every week, I mean, I'd be happy to share with you some stories even as of late of just how far they go. They go a long way. Wouldn't you love for those videos to make their way into places of the world that don't have the truth 
and them get curious about it. And our church be a part of going and sharing and establishing the truth in different places and reorganizing churches that are now true churches. Wouldn't you love that? I could go on and on. There are many things. Here's what I'll say. The extent of how far our shadow goes depends upon our relation to the sun. Do you want our shadow as a church to go a long way? We must get closer to the sun. There's a question that Jesus asked to his disciples. The harvest was out there. And it was ready. But there weren't enough laborers to get it in. God is marvelous and he's big. And he is, as the Ephesian writer Paul said, he can do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or what we think. And I say this morning that as the trajectory goes downward, what I see through eyes of faith in a big God is that that stops here. That what we've experienced is the worst that we'll experience. And that from this point forward, by God's greatness and by the willingness of God's people to surrender, that the trajectory begins to look upward. You know, I think about, I've been long this morning and I apologize, but I want to share just a couple more things. I think about that day in the book of Ezra when those old men and those young men had just laid the foundation temple. The old men remembered the old temple. They remembered how ornate and beautiful it was. And they wept. Now, imagine this, okay? They've spent, and I can't remember now, it's been a while since I've read it, how many years that it took them to lay that foundation. It was a lot of years just to get all the rubble off of it and then redo the foundation to where you're ready to build the temple. But here's what I love about that story. It it just so speaks to my heart about today. Yes, there were former days of glory that were wonderful, but those days were gone. And they're never going to come back in those ways. They're forever gone. And those old men were doing something that is natural to old men and old women. And that is to live in those glory days and ignore the present. And those men were weeping and they were calling out and they were, I wish it was like it used to be. And it could not be distinguished. Their cries could not be distinguished from the weepings of joy of those young people. Because listen, the young people had grown up and all they'd ever seen is a pile of rubble. That's all they'd ever seen. They had never seen, they had heard the stories, but they had never seen the temple built and strong and glorious and immaculate as it was in the days of Solomon. They were weeping for joy. And here's why they were weeping for joy. Because for the first time in their life, they had hope. I contend to you today what young people in my generation and younger need is not a finished product. It's hope. That after I'm gone, even if it's generations later, that after I'm gone, things will be better than what they are and what they have been in my life. I'm bringing before you this message today to say 
There is no, there is not one iota of doubt in my heart that God can do that. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. As we talk about prayer, won't you join with me in praying for things that we really want to see? Those things of grandeur that it would take your heart beyond your wildest imaginations to see. Why can't it occur? Why can't it occur? But when you pray it, realize this. God may call you to be a part of doing it. Are you willing to do it? I think because of largely the minister school and other endeavors this church has done, what this church does matters to a lot of people in a lot of places. And because of that, do you know what it could do if God helped us to become a template of hope to all the other churches around us? Do you know how much that could reverberate far and wide for generations to come in places that we'll never see and people we will never meet? It's funny because when people come from the minister school, they only know of Old Union as the minister school. And as your pastor, it's like that's something we do, but it's not who we are. We're something completely different than that. But I want you to know this morning, God may be wanting to do some great things with us, not for us, but for other people. I pray this morning that you would see how great God is and what he can do. I would love... I would love for us as a church to just have this, this next generation of young people just to send them out and to go. And I know that God can do that. And I pray, oh, how I pray that God would do that. I can't consider the alternative. It's too hard for me to bear. What if he doesn't? What if we just continue on with the same attrition rate we've had the last 20 years? I, I know God doesn't want that to happen. And I don't believe you do either. I think it just comes at a cost. And it's hard to pay that cost. But I want to challenge you that if you do it, the heavenly investments will far outweigh the losses you suffer here. That's our message this morning. I said a lot today and I I pray very often things are all mixed around in my heart and mind and I don't know how they're going to come out. I didn't expect it all to come out that way, but I pray that God would use it in whatever fashion that he sees fit to use it today in your heart and in your life.